Hi, so uh, this is Ian Wilkinson. I'm a consultant geriatrician down at East Surrey Hospital in Redhill. And I'm here at the BGS. We've uh, snuck off to a little quiet corner and we're going to record an MDT and cake. So this is uh, an MDT episode where we're focusing on some of the knowledge and exchange that you may get from a conference. We're going to talk about some of the lectures over the next couple of days and then also some of the posters that we've seen. The MDT Podcast. I'm not doing this on my own. Joining me today is... Hello, I'm Philippa Christie. I'm one of the registrars at East Surrey Hospital. Um, and this was my first BGS conference, so it's um, quite exciting to talk about it. On the first day, so Philippa, I wasn't there the first day, but you were, so the theme was on end-of-life care, wasn't it? Yeah, so the uh, theme of the day was uh, end-of-life care, dementia um, and frailty. Um, and there were quite a few things to take away from that day. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Um, the f- first couple of lectures were um, by Professor Rowan Harwood and by Professor Mira Agar on end-of-life care in dementia and looking at delirium on end-of-life care as well. Uh, so something I found really interesting um, was learning about how people value different things about the end of their life. And actually, when when asked, a lot of people have said that they really one of the things they most value at the end of their life is being awake and aware. And I think in hospitals we have a tendency to see people when they're distressed at the end of their life and we want to do something about that. So we might give them medication that might sedate them, but actually we should be thinking about whether or not these symptoms are actually something that's bothering them or is it that we're treating ourselves or treating the family. Um, I think that's really that's really important, isn't it? And, and that links into a lot of the things that we say uh, through the podcast and an increasingly important narrative, I think, about person-centred care and ensuring that the care that we are giving really is truly person-centred and that requires talking to your patients and finding out what their wishes their wants their desires are both at that time but also having that conversation as early as possible beforehand so that we know some of these ideas before uh, you sort of have to actually enact it if you like yeah I, I, I definitely think that's that's really important and um one of the other things that I took away was that so that we're very good at recognising I think we're quite good at recognising when someone is nearing the end of their life but actually recognising delirium at the end of life I think is a little bit more tricky as um, as we know that when someone is nearing the end of their life they tend to become a little bit more withdrawn they might become a little bit more sleepy and that's actually part of the dying process but actually recognising when there's a there's an overlay with perhaps a hypoactive delirium that we could actually do something about and actually help at the end of life. I think um, I think it's really important for us to think about that um, and think about what we can do that might not be that invasive, but actually might help them have sort of some meaningful last moments with their their loved ones because they're more aware and they're more they're more able to sort of interact with people. I think that's really important. Yeah, I think that that's fab, and and obviously the things that if you want to find out some of the things that you can do about delirium, then we've got. Um, the second episode of this podcast is on delirium um, so go back and, and have a listen to that or have a look at the really excellent nice guidelines as well uh, it was a bit about frailty and sort of the national perspectives the afternoon was about frailty and sarcopenia and there's some interesting talks about what we can do to try and avoid frailty and sarcopenia but I think the the key points that, that I took away were in talks by um, Martin Vernon and Professor John Gladman um, it was talking about a lot around the terminology and how 
we use the word frailty and how we need to possibly think a little bit more about how we use the word frailty. Um, there was a big push to avoid using the term frail older adults and move towards recognising that frailty is a sort of a long-term condition that we need to um, separate from ageing. So there's this idea of active ageing and um, making ageing not a scary thing and not something that people associate with being frail, but actually something that is a natural process but can be maintaining your activities and your sort of muscle strength and your resilience. There was a lot of talk about resilience as a as a term to be possibly the opposite of frailty, but not sure. One of the things that I was talking to um, Rebecca Winter, who's a, a, doing a PhD down in Brighton, one of the things that she was saying is the the number of definitions that we have for frailty and how everyone uh, often has their own sort of slight personal take on, on what frailty means. And thinking back to qualitative research, and when you use grounded theories, one of the, the ways that you sometimes look to define something is you, you look at the exact opposite of what it is not and then sort of use that to help you think about the thing that you're trying to describe. And, and I think thinking about frailty in that way does tend to lead you to resilience, doesn't it? As, as sort of resilience to stresses as opposed to vulnerability to stresses. I think um, by sort of recognising frailty as a long-term medical condition that we can do something about and that we need to recognise early um, really separates it from ageing and I think there's a lot of um, stuff that Martin Vernon said about um, how we're moving forward in the way we manage frailty and there's some interesting um, things in the NHS long-term plan about how we're going to react to frailty in the community and um, to try and prevent crises of frailty bringing people into hospital and necessarily um, getting to that point and trying to pick people up early which I think was sounds really exciting cool okay so let's move on to uh, the next couple of days now I don't have the program in front of me so I but I do have a collection of, of talks that I went to I think this was from the Thursday this was from a a talk by Oliver Todd, uh, who's doing a PhD up in Leeds and was part of the session on big data. And essentially the idea with big data is that by collecting and using the data that we have out there, you may be able to see trends that perhaps you can't see so easily uh, without doing that. And he was talking about what is the optimal blood pressure in uh, people living with frailty. And essentially we know that your blood pressure drops towards the end of your life. And there are meta-analyses that show that if you are fit, there is a mortality difference if you have a low blood pressure. But if you are frail, there is no mortality difference if you have a low blood pressure. And that the recording of your blood pressure has got many confounders, which also may affect your mortality. So, for example, if you've got uh, heart failure uh, because of some ischemic heart disease or uh, hypertensive cardiomyopathy or something, then your blood pressure may well be low. The heart failure itself may be the thing that's affecting the mortality and not the low blood pressure. So it's difficult to tease one from the other in individual patients. But by looking at large cohorts of data, um, maybe you can see some trends within that. And you can use computer algorithms to tease out um, comorbidities and co-occurrences of, of various conditions um, if you've got the coding correct. And I think that was the, the bit that sort of rang out to me from the whole section on big data, is it? data is only as good as the data that you put in originally. I didn't attend this lecture but in, in practice what this would mean to me would be um, less focus on trying to really increase those the blood pressure of the frail older people in hospital we get we get a lot of um, 
get a lot of focus on people with low blood pressure and it, quite often for good reason if they are septic or if they're unwell in another way then it's something we need to do a lot about but in a in a well patient um, it's recognizing that it might be old, it might be lower because of their age and because of frailty um, so I think that's it's really important to think about and that led on to actually there was a, a lecture in the the very final session of the last day talking about blood pressure in the context of stroke and I think one of the interesting things on that was uh, sort of some hints about whether or not you know is blood pressure what we should be measuring or should we be measuring some kind of measure of vascular stiffness or vascular flow which is probably more accurate as a perfusion marker than, than the blood pressure uh, and I think there'll be more data coming out about that uh, you know in the future so did you go to the surgery ones I did get to the surgery yes, ones yes. yes they were they were very interesting so uh, th- there were a couple of surgery ones um, so the first one was on the ELF study with Miss um, Susan Moog and she looked at um, the data from the ELF study which is looking at emergency laparotomy patients um, and their outcomes um, depending on their age and the, sort of the type of surgery they're having and whether or not they're frailty and trying to sort of ex- take out all that, da- all that data apart and actually um, look at what is changing mortality rates, what's changing morbidity rates, which is really important, and what is influencing complication rates. So one of the things that came out from that was the importance of NELA, which is the National Emergency Laparotomy Audit, which is already showing reductions in the quite high mortality rate that there is there for older people with uh, emergency laparotomies. Uh, Akin to uh, the sort of benefits that we've seen by adding in physicians to patients' care in the hip fracture database, um, where there's been a 50% reduction in mortality over a 10-year period. Then there was another lecture from uh, consultant surgeon Catherine McCarthy in Bristol uh, looking at what is different in the surgery in frail older patients. And she made the point that the mean diagnosis of bowel cancer is at the age of 70, and that curative surgery has risks associated with it, uh, risks of death at about 2%, risks for stoma uh, at about 100%, and risks of a reduction in quality of life at about 100%. And therefore, there's a huge importance about patient's choice and having discussions with patients about the sort of treatment that they might want. And she talked about some of the impacts of surgery on the physiology Surgery in itself can cause a lot of physiological changes, uh, including um, the release of corticotrophin-releasing hormone, which leads to physiological stress on the body. And there are ways that actually we can reduce this release, um, which will therefore hopefully reduce the physiological stresses. Um, And some of the ways we can think about reducing this are prehab and um, optimising nutrition preoperatively and perioperatively. Um, we can reduce the time of the operation itself and we can try and avoid opiates um, and actually as well as reducing the time of the of the surgery by having it lap- um, laparoscopically instead of lap- uh, laparotomy or an open surgery again that reduces the um, CRH release and reduces therefore the stress on the body and therefore hopefully can help with the post-operative rehabilitation um, and there was the real recognition that um, a geriatrician can play a key role in this um, and 
involving geriatricians in care um, preoperatively and postoperatively can really help to optimise patients so that they can try and um, retain as much quality of life as possible after the surgery. Yeah, I really like those two. This kind of the two went together, um, that and the health study, and I just I just really liked that they were uh, two really engaged uh, surgeons who uh, really value the um, as many surgeons do really value the benefit of a multidisciplinary approach to, to looking after patients, um, and I think that leads on nicely to talking about the Marjorie Warren lecture, which was done by Scott uh, Brackenridge, who is a trauma surgeon and intensivist from the states. And he works down in a major trauma centre in Florida. Um, so this gets a bit complicated. Uh, so we'll, we'll, those of you that listen to the podcast know that we have a nerd alert, and, and that's what this noise is. So kind of we'll, we'll try and go through this as best as we can. And I guess it, what, what he started off with, wasn't it, Philip, about saying that patients with trauma and those undergoing acute general surgery are getting older. Yeah, and it was the recognition that ageing is a sort of independent risk factor for um, increased length of stay, um, for needing um, higher, so higher physical needs post-operatively and perhaps needing to go into um, a care home and also a risk for mortality as well. But despite this, the in-hospital sort of intensive care mortality is reducing. Um, and he felt that was due to the advances that there have been over the last few years in organ support. Um, but there are a cohort of people that are in intensive care settings for a considerable period of time with a series of critical illnesses that he termed chronic critical illness. And what he was saying was that those people have an acute inflammatory response or an acute inflammatory storm which leads to a persistent immune dysfunction, which he called persistent uh, inflammatory immunosuppressive catabolic state syndrome, uh, PICS, which is kind of an induced frailty. Mm. And uh, he had some very interesting graphs which um, showed how people who um, were sort of... uh, were completely normal physiologically, normal as such physiologically beforehand, um, and how they could go sort of one or two ways, really, or one or three ways. So they could either um, recover completely from surgery and um, go back to their original state, or they could um, not do as well after surgery, or they could um, get into this state where it's sort of this chronic critical illness and they're sort of at this new sort of level of induced frailty which is worsened if you are older initially and have more comorbidities it leaves you at increased risk of having um, induced frailty. I think that's really interesting given the possibilities for um, linking into frailty itself in the future in terms of a research side of things because it it really highlights the fact to me that frailty involves the immune system and what we're seeing here is an acute dysfunction of the immune system versus uh, people living with frailty that's more of a chronic uh, dysfunction. And then the the last one we were going to talk about was Professor Carl Clark's uh, lecture on the motor symptoms of Parkinson's disease. Uh, now I run a PD clinic so do you want me to go through this I think, one? Yeah I'll leave this to you. Yeah, yeah. okay fine. <laughs> uh, so essentially he 
uh, made a distinction at the beginning about the fact that obviously there is a distinction between motor and non-motor symptoms and when thinking about the motor symptoms which is what most of his talk was about um, we have no disease modifying drugs for Parkinson's disease at the moment there have been many failed trials uh, and at the moment there is also a, a trial that uh, looking at uh, alpha-synuclein uh, treatment which is obviously the hormone that is uh, uh, abnormal in Parkinson's and then when thinking about motor symptoms they may be mild or they may be more severe and uh, currently when people have mild motor symptoms with no functional problems uh, we tend not to treat them and when they start to develop motor problems uh, that are causing functional problems uh, then they have treatment and there are a number of different potential treatments and Carl, Carl Clark was the lead author on the PD-MED study which aimed to answer the question of which is the best initial treatment and in that study his his reading of that is that there is a slight uh, protective effect of levodopa but I think there's probably quite slight and then he had thoughts about when you're starting levodopa um, aiming to try to restrict to around 600 milligrams a day uh, as people's disease gets more severe and, and that may reduce some of the motor fluctuations as time goes on but also when starting um, gradually building up to uh, around 100 milligrams three times a day um, which I think is fine for most patients with, with patients with frailty uh, sometimes you need slightly less than that um, and also patients that are underweight uh, sometimes need a bit less than that as well uh, and I think in the, the next little podcast we talk about posters um, that will come out in one of the posters as well that people that are losing weight have more side effects and then he went on to talk about there are more advanced treatments and obviously this gets quite complicated but essentially there are dopamine agonists and there are uh, COMPT inhibitors uh, such as tolcapone and intacapone and they are less well tolerated in older people and that was shown in the delayed PD-MED analysis uh, and showed that uh, dopamine agonists uh, have a similar efficacy to I'm not sure that's true actually So, and, and that was shown as in the delayed PD-MED study um, there are lots of the slides on Twitter using the hashtag BGSConf um, but overall I thought it was a good three days of lectures yeah it was very good um, I learned a lot <laughs> cool Fab. And the next BGS conference, uh, the next national conference is in November and is up in Leicester. And we're going to be running a focus group about the podcast. So if you do listen to the podcast, please do get in touch with us if you're going to the BGS and you can get involved with uh, a little bit of research that we're doing about the learning that people get from these uh, episodes. Fab. So this is the MDT and Cake, and that was the lectures from the PGS Conference of Spring 2019. The MDT Podcast. 